Uh, if you're a guest or a visitor, let me explain something to you. Uh, <laughs> that was a senior pastor. I'm not the senior pastor, I'm one of the worship pastors, but it's my privilege and honor this morning uh, to be able to lead us in another facet of worship through the preaching and the teaching of the Word, something I always love to do and am humbled to do it, especially today. Today just seems even more special, just being able to watch Clay and Casey uh, be baptized and what the Lord's doing in their life, an awesome thing. And we get to celebrate both ordinances of the church this morning. What an awesome privilege that is with baptism and then later with the Lord's Supper. And so just as a reminder, if you haven't got your elements yet, if you didn't get those on the way in, uh, you're going to need those. There's not going to be someone coming to hand those out. And so if you don't have them, uh, they're right outside those doors just at any point. If you get bored of my message, just get up and go get one. And uh, you can have that ready because at the end of the message, we're going to take that together uh, and celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And so what I want to do to kind of just get our minds and our prepared to the Lord's Supper together to look at the bread of life found in John chapter 6 verses 25 through 36. John chapter 6 verses 25 through 36. And it's my hope that this will just uh, kind of help us get to a place where we can uh, appreciate a little bit more about what the Lord has done for us in spite of us. And so here's what it says. Let's just jump right in. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So this text and what we're going to talk about this morning, what I would really hope that we would understand is this. Jesus Christ is the only life-giving bread that can truly satisfy your greatest needs and desires. That's what we're going after this morning. Now, when we come to John chapter 6, verses 25 through 35, we're uh, kind of right in the middle of something, and so we're going to talk about that. But this is known as one of the I am statements from Jesus. He gave seven I am statements. He said, I'm the bread of life. He said, I'm the way and the truth and the life. I'm the resurrection and the life. I am the vine, all these different things. But whenever we come to one of these I am statements, we have to take note of something because this is an important moment. When Jesus says, I am, he is relating himself on the same level as God. He is taking God's name and he is saying, I am God. I am God and I am the bread of life. I am God, and I'm the way and the truth and the life. And so whenever we come to an I am statement, he's taking the form of God. He's saying, I'm on level with God. I am God. And so it's a really important, significant moment. Now, in our text, I kind of jumped right into the middle of a passage, so we need to clarify a couple of things. Uh, We need to get a little bit of context, or else it's going to be like we're listening to two people talk about a movie that we haven't seen yet. So we need to clarify a couple of things. First off... um, 
they come to him on the other side of the sea and they say, Rabbi, when did you come here? So there's some events that have led up to this moment that we need to get some clarification on. The second thing that we need clarification on is what's the deal with the manna? So the crowd references the manna and Moses, and we need to understand those things to really understand this text. So the first thing is that manna. Uh, You may remember this in the book of Exodus. God chooses his nation. And at that time when he chooses them, they're in captivity under the Egyptians. And so God sends Moses to be his prophet to this nation, to, to free them from the hands of Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And all these miraculous signs happen. Uh, they, they leave Egypt. The great Red Sea is parted. They leave, and then they're in the wilderness. And it's not too long after that that they start to complain, like we do so often. And they complain because they're hungry. And they say, well, at least when we were in Egypt, we had something to eat, even though we were slaves. We still had some food to eat. We have nothing in the wilderness. And so God does what God does. He provides for them. And the way he provides for them is literal bread from heaven. He sends bread for them, uh, which they called manna. And so every morning when they got up, they had this manna. It was just enough for them for the day. God did this to the nation of Israel for 40 years every single day. He provided for them. So when our text references the crowd talking about the manna or Moses, that's what they're referencing. And then again, I told you that the the passage begins with when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? So what just happened? There's a hugely significant event that just took place. Two, really, but one in particular. And it's found in John chapter 6, verse 1. It's the feeding of the 5,000. You remember this story, right? I think if you grew up in church or you've been around, you probably remember this. Or it was one of the first Bible school stories that you uh, remember. I still remember making the little craft on the paper plate with the fish and the loaves and the bread and the the fish and taking that home and hanging it on the fridge. Uh, This is a, a miraculous event that Jesus does. I think oftentimes what we tend to do, though, with the miracles, especially ones like this, is we say, that's cool, but that's for the kids. Let's move on. Let's get to some deeper things, but we cannot do that. This is a significant event in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. In fact, it's so significant that this miracle is the only miracle apart from the resurrection. It's the only miracle Jesus performs that's accounted for in all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, we know that uh, all, all, all the Gospels are a little bit different. Mark may have added something that John didn't, or Matthew and and Luke added something that the others didn't. And in fact, John tells us in his gospel that if if, if all the things that Jesus did were written down, the books of the world wouldn't contain them. So we have different perspectives from different people, um, and so they, they omit certain things. But this one, this miracle, is so important that all four of the gospels mention it. It's known as the feeding of the 5,000, but that's not what it was. Uh, if you know this, you'll know from the other accounts that the, the numbering was only for the men. They only counted the men. There were 5,000 men that were there. So if that's the case, wherever there are men, there are usually women. And wherever there are men and women, there are usually children. And so the actual accounts, a lot of people think, was actually over 20,000 people when you count the women and the children. I mean, this is a huge crowd. And you remember the story, hopefully. If not, let me just recap it for you. Jesus is on a mountain with his disciples. They're trying to get some alone time together. And they look down below, and there's a sea of people coming towards him. 
Jesus is growing in his popularity. He's doing all these signs and wonders. Specifically, John tells us, they were interested in the healing signs. And so they're coming to him. They're following him. They're all around him. And Jesus, in John's account, I find this interesting, decides to pick on Philip for some reason. Uh, So he turns to Philip and he says, hey, Philip, what are we going to do about this? And Philip's probably like, hey, man, there's 12 others. Why are you picking me? Because there's a sea of people. And Jesus says, hey, Philip, how are we going to come up with enough money to buy bread for these people to eat? Because it's late in the day. This is a desolate place. There is, no, there is nothing around. There is nowhere for them to go. If Jesus just turns them away, like the, the disciples said, just turn them away, Jesus. And he doesn't want to turn them away because if he does that, they could go home on an empty stomach. They could faint on the way home. And so Philip gets picked on. And then Andrew, in John's account, just comes out of nowhere. And he's like, hi, I found something. <laughs> Look, Jesus, I found uh, this little boy's lunch. But what is this for so many? And you might think that that's kind of an ignorant thing, but actually from the other accounts, we know that uh, Jesus sent the disciples out into the crowd. He said, go out there and, and see what we have. Maybe we can get enough stuff. Maybe if everyone brought enough, we can collect it and we can kind of ration it out to where people have enough to eat. And Andrew gets to be the spokesman coming back to Jesus, telling him that they found nothing. You go tell him. I ain't telling him. And Andrew's like, I'll tell him. Fine. Jesus, we didn't find anything except for nobody came prepared. But this one little boy, he had a lunch. So why is Jesus doing this? Like, why is he asking, is he asking advice from Philip? Well, we know that's not true. We know the text tells us Jesus already knows what he's going to do. He's going to miraculously feed everyone. But why does he ask Philip? Why send the disciples out into the crowd? What's the point of that if Jesus knows he's already going to do what he's going to do? And the reason is because Jesus is setting the table for the miracle he's about to perform. He wants everybody to know this is a hopeless situation. He wants everybody to know that the crowd brought nothing, except for one little prepared boy, amen for him, but the crowd brought nothing. There is no food to ration out. We don't have enough money. I mean, Philip even says even 200 denarii, which is almost a year's wages, wouldn't be enough to buy food for everyone just to have a little bit. We have no money to buy food. Even if we did, there's nowhere to buy food. We're in a desolate place. This is a hopeless situation. He's setting the table for this miracle. He wants everyone to know what's about to take place is absolutely miraculous. And then Jesus tells him, okay, have them sit down. Have them sit down in the grass. In one account, it says that they actually had them sit down in groups of 50 or 100. I guess they were Baptists because they counted everything. And so he has them sit down in certain groups and he says, okay, now let's... Let's, uh, let's take this little boy's lunch and imagine this. Picture this. Jesus holding this little insignificant meal up in front of 20,000 plus people and blessing it. And then he takes that meal and he gets, begins to distribute it out. And he gives some here and some here and it just keeps coming. Maybe he gives some to the disciples and he has them go out and they're like, okay, and they start and it just keeps coming and keeps coming and keeps coming. 20,000 people have their fill. I probably would too. I've never had heavenly bread or heavenly fish, but I can imagine it was probably pretty awesome. Bread that was uh, just created, never, never had to be grown or harvested from seed that touched soil or dirt. I mean, our Father who knows exactly what we desire and what we need. I mean, fish that never swam in the sea, never was undercooked, never was overcooked. I mean, this was probably a perfect meal. <laughs> 
the likes of which they've never experienced before. So what would you do if something was so good? You'd overeat, wouldn't you? Which is what they do. It says that, man, they got their feel. They just gorged themselves. Seconds, thirds, they're probably stuffing it in anywhere they can get it. And it says even after that, there were 12 baskets of just leftovers left. A miraculous event. 20,000 plus people and Jesus just feeds them all. It's such a miraculous event um, for, for a couple of reasons because Jesus did different types of miracles. He did miracles of healing or restoration. So he, like someone that's born blind, he restores their sight. Uh, he did miracles of transformation. He, tra- he, he created water from wine. He transformed it. This is not a miracle of restoration. It's not a miracle of transformation. This is a miracle of creation. He is creating something from nothing. Who does that? God does that. He is showing everyone he is God. Only God can create something from nothing. The second thing that's really important about this miracle and why it's unique is that in all the other miracles Jesus did, there was a group of people who were there who witnessed it, maybe a small group, and they told people, this is 20,000 people, not only witnessing it with their eyes, but partaking in the miracle physically. I mean, they took the miracle. They put it into their mouths and into their bodies. This is a significant, significant event in the life of Jesus. And he feeds all of them. And it says that the crowd was stunned. The crowd doesn't know what to do with him. They, they think, what are they going to think? They're going to go back to what they know. They're going to think, Moses. They're going to remember Moses and how, to, to their forefathers, how Moses provided manna for them in the wilderness, and they, they think, okay, we've got us another prophet. He's providing us another meal. And so they think, we've got us another prophet. And it says they're going to take him by force and make him king. And Jesus does what Jesus always does, because he just perceives their thoughts and their intentions before it can well up to an actual action. And he just knows that that's about to happen. He just slips out. Just another miracle. Jesus just ninjas himself out of the situation, out of all these people. Even the disciples don't know where he goes. He just disappears. Everybody's stunned. They're looking for him. His disciples don't even know where he is. And the disciples that night, they still can't find him. So they get in their boat and they think, let's go to the other side of the sea. Let's go to Capernaum. That's our home base. Maybe he's there. So they get in their boat and they start crossing the sea in the middle of the night. And then you remember this story? The storm hits. And their boat is rocked, and they're frightened, and they're scared. And in the midst of the darkness, Jesus comes walking on the water towards them. It says they're frightened. Of course, they're frightened. In one account, it says they thought maybe it was a ghost. And Jesus said, no, it's me. It's me. And they say, come here. And they get him in the boat. And once Jesus gets in the boat, in John's account, miraculously, just like that, in one instant, no longer are they on the middle of the sea. They're on dry ground in Capernaum, where they were headed. Just transported instantly. I mean, think about the last 12 hours for the disciples. What they've seen and witnessed. And so the crowd, they're still looking for Jesus as well, and they don't know where he is. They saw the disciples get in the boat without him that night. They're watching. They're looking. They want to find him. They saw the disciples get in the boat and head to Capernaum. They know Jesus wasn't with him. They can't find him anywhere. So the next morning, they say, let's just go to Capernaum. Maybe they know something we don't know. They go. They get there. And sure enough, there's Jesus with his disciples, and they're so confused why he got there. 
which comes into our passage in verse 25 when it says, they found him on the other side of the sea and they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? We are confused. And Jesus just, as he always does, just is like, I'm not going to answer that question. I know you had a question, but I ain't answering. Instead, I'm just going to talk to you about what you really need. And so in verse 26, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. He's telling them, you're seeking me for all the wrong reasons. That sign that I did for you, it was to show you that I'm God, that I'm the Son of God come. But you're not seeking me with that mentality. You're seeking me because you want more bread. That's why you've come. I met a physical need of yours, but I've not come to meet a physical need. I've come to meet a spiritual need. And they're coming to him for all of the wrong reasons. And then they say to him in verse 28, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And oh, how this breaks my heart. Not just for them, but even today, we just have this mentality that we've got to do something. We've got to work somehow to earn God's favor. That if we can just tip the balances, if I could just do a little more good than I do bad, then God will accept me. Then what the Bible says, it says you're dead in your trespasses and sins. Dead people can tip no scales. They can't do anything. It has to be a work of God. And so Jesus answers them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. If there's any work that's involved, if you're so caught up and hung up on work, then here's the work you should do. Believe. Have faith. That's your work. So they said to him, then what sign do you do? (laughs) That we may see and believe you. What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven. What an arrogant statement is this. Hey, what work are you going to do? Are you saying you're better than Moses? Well, what, how are you going to show that? And I mean, are you kidding me? Just yesterday on the other side of the shore, that wasn't proof enough for you? I fed 20,000 of you. But that's not enough for them because what they're doing is they're playing the comparison game. They're saying to Jesus, okay, what you did yesterday, that was cool. That was good, but that was a one-time thing for 20,000 people for one meal. Congratulations. Moses, he fed an entire nation of people for 40 years. Top that, Jesus. They're playing the comparison game. This is a very arrogant thing to do, and Jesus just puts them in their place. And he says in verse 30, um, He says in verse 32, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses. It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So Jesus is saying, you want to play the comparison game? Let's play the comparison game. I'm not only going to feed 20,000 people one meal. I'm not going to just feed an entire nation of millions of people for 40 years, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to spiritually feed an entire world throughout all of the history of mankind for their spiritual need. That's what I'm going to do because I'm the greater Moses. And he's going to prove that 
And he's telling them, it was not Moses who did that. I don't know why you're putting your faith in Moses. It was God. God's the only one that sends the true bread from heaven. And guess who he sent? Me. He sent me. And they said to him in verse 34, Sir, give us this bread always. They still don't get it. They still don't get it. They think, about, they think he's talking about physical bread. Give us this bread always. Not to blame them. They just had physical bread the other day, but Jesus is trying to show them. And I mean, he's trying to show them why he's really come. I mean, think about it. When he was on that mountain and just fed those 20,000 people, should that not have been Jesus' moment? I mean, if he was going to start a rebellion, that was the moment to do it. You've just done this miraculous thing in front of 20,000 people. Their allegiance is to you. I mean, start the campaign ads. Make Israel great again, right? It's time. I'm Jesus, and I approve this message. This is your time to, to, to create a rebellion right here. And what does he do? He slips out of the crowd. His moment, in, by all accounts, was then. And yet he's not come to start a rebellion. He's not come to feed people physical bread. He said, there's a greater need that you have. That's why I've come. And he tells them that true bread comes from heaven, and my Father has sent me. And they still think he's talking about physical bread. And Jesus said to them in verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never Thirst, And just before that, remember, he said, For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Gives life to the world. I am the bread of life. So those two terms for life are extremely important for us to understand. See, the Greeks, they had different, uh, they had different words for different meanings of life. See, we don't. We have, uh, we, have the same, we have the same root word that has different meanings. That's why I could come to you in a panic and I could say, Is he alive? Or I can kind of casually be like, hey, how's life? The same root meaning, uh, root word with different meanings, but the Greeks had actual different words for different meanings. So one word that the Greeks had for life uh, was bios. Bios was physical life, material life, was flesh, material things. This would be an example in Luke chapter 8 of the woman who's uh, sick for over a decade of her life, and it says that she spent all of her bios on doctors and medical bills. She spent all of her physical life, all of her resources, trying to find help. But then there's another term for life, and you've probably heard Pastor talk about this, talk about several times recently. There's another term for life as well. It's zoe. And it's not material life, it's eternal life. It's the deeper meaning and the deeper purpose of life. It's eternal life, transcendent life. This would be like we just witnessed with Clay and Casey. You are raised to walk in newness of zoe, not bios. Two different terms. Eternal life, fullness of life, transcendent life. See, what's happening here is the crowd keeps thinking in terms of bios, and Jesus is talking in terms of zoe. They're thinking in terms of material life, actual bread. Jesus isn't talking about that. When he talks about life, he uses the term Zoe. And this is the, the next point that I really think we need to understand this morning. We have a Zoe need that we try to solve with a BIOS solution. I mean, let's be honest. 
we know that things are broken. We know that things aren't right. You look out the window and you know there are things that are not right. You look in the mirror sometimes, you know that things are not right. That there is a need that you have. There's an emptiness that is there. And what do we tend to do? We tend to look to bios needs to fill a zoe desire. We turn to other bios breads in our life to try to fulfill us and sustain us when it was never meant to do that. We turn to bios breads when we're lonely and we turn to addiction and the bios bread of addiction or alcohol or drugs. We turn to bios breads of we need affirmation or we put all of our eggs in the basket of our career and our bios pursuit of money and things. But we have a Zoe need. And yet we're trying to fill this Zoe need with by us things it was never meant to fill us. And in fact, what tends to happen is a lot of times these by us things that we run to in life to try to fill us up and try to sustain us, what do they do? They end up not working. They don't truly satisfy. They fall away and they fade. They are fleeting. They do not sustain us. There is a greater need that we have. And often, a lot of times, if we're being honest, those bios breads that we run to to fill us up only end up breaking us and failing us. And so here's the last thing that I really, we got to get this. Here's the last thing I want us to understand. All the breads that we run to for life will ultimately break us. Jesus is the only bread that was broken for us. All of those things that we turn our life to and our attention to, they will not satisfy us. They will end up crushing us. But the bread of life come down from heaven, the Zoe bread of Jesus Christ, is the only one that was broken for you. That happens and, and because Jesus is sent by God. You and I deserve that we may walk in newness of Zoe. And his body was broken for you. This bread from heaven, this bread of life, comes down and is broken for you and broken for me. I can't think of a better time to transition into thinking about the Lord's Supper together. And so I'll ask you to even just begin to get your elements out. And if you would, even as I'm talking, just begin to peel off the first layer that exposes the wafer. And you may even want to begin to peel off the second layer, uh, just get it started at least, that exposes the juice. But let's get that wafer out and let's hold it together in our hands. So what I would like us to remember this morning is that for the believer, this is significant. Now, if you're not a believer, this is a stale little cracker to you. It means nothing. But to those of us who believe and put our faith in Jesus Christ, this is significant to us. Why? Because it represents something. It represents the body of Christ, the bread of heaven that has come down from heaven, sent by God, and is broken for you and for me. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul writes it this way, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. 
that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you for the Zoe bread of life that has come down that you have sent in our place, on our behalf, to be broken for us, in spite of us, and for the bread of life, for the body of Christ, God, we give you thanks. Amen. Take and eat. Verse 25 of 1 Corinthians 11 says, In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, and he said this, This is the cup. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. So, Father, we thank you for your blood. We, we know that you, your scripture says that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. And so we thank you for your willingness to shed your blood so that we can be forgiven, so that we can be redeemed. And for the blood of Christ, God, we give you thanks. Amen. Take and drink. That passage in 1 Corinthians 11 ends this way, and this is important as well. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So there's another element to it. This is not only remembrance and it's not only celebration, but for us it's proclamation. We are proclaiming to the world around us, I believe this. I believe this gospel. I believe that he has changed my life and he is faithful to his word. And so I remember and I rejoice. And some of you today, you have not put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord. And my prayer and our prayer as a church is that you would look at the witness of this church as we just took the Lord's Supper together. That we believe this. That it's not just intellectual faith. That he's transformed us. He's changed us. And so that's why we do that. And that you would look at that witness and it would move you through the Holy Spirit working in your life to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. In a moment, we're going to have a song of response and invitation like we always do. And we're going to be up here. And we would love for you to come talk to us, to pray with us about that. You don't have to come forward to receive Jesus Christ. You can do that where you're seated or at any point. But we would love the opportunity to talk with you about it, to pray with you about it. Some of us will be up here to receive you. And for the rest of us, your response maybe just needs to be worship. Just thanking him, this bread of life that has come down for you, that was broken for you, and all the other breads of your life will fail you. He never will. What an awesome God you are. But if you'd like to come to receive prayer for anything, we'll be here. Uh, we'd love to pray with you and for you. If you'd like to come join the church, you can do that at this time as well. But let's remember celebrate the Zoe need that we have in our life is filled by the bread of heaven, the bread of life, Jesus Christ, who has come down to give us everything that we need. With Jesus and nothing else, church, you have everything. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the bread of life 
Jesus Christ, your Son, whom you sent in our place, on our behalf, because of your love and your grace and your incredible mercy, we remember, we reflect, we celebrate the bread of life that has come to give us Zoe life as well. And God, I pray that if there are any of those here this morning that do not know you as the bread of life, this true satisfying bread that they would come and they would receive what only you can give them and how only you can satisfy them. Satisfy us as well as you always do. What an awesome God you are. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together.